Here we are, extracts from 1 Kings chapter 15 and 16, ready for Jason to come and preach to us. In the year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Marka, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Marka, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became, of Israel, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Abijah, became king of all Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shema for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria after Shema, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Good morning, everybody. Is that better? A bit louder? Well, this is the bit of the service that you don't remember. That's encouraging, isn't it? Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Unless I pour water over myself. I, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. Uh, of course, I know exactly what Nick means with the old age bit. It's those accidents, isn't it, and those different things that happen. Hopefully, you will remember it. And hopefully, the most important thing is not whether you remember it actually or not. I'm not trying to get it in the memory banks. It's whether God uses it or not to change you this morning. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? And from here on in, that's the same with the old age and the same with the songs and the same with the sermon. I wonder how many times you're tempted to turn off the news. You don't even have to get up now, do you? In the olden days, you had to get up and you had to press the button on the TV, whereas now you sit there and you're thinking, well, which remote is it? Is it that one? Is it, is it, that, is it that one? Where's the remote gone? Have you ever had that in your house? You can't find the remote. It's fallen under the settee or it's down the side or you've carried it through into the kitchen when you put the kettle on or something like that and you can't find it. So sometimes you can't turn off the news. But are you tempted to turn off the news? Do you even watch the news? Maybe you made the decision a while ago and you said, I don't want to watch this anymore. It's actually it's too depressing. It's too difficult. It's just the bad stuff all the time. You ever feel like that? I don't know if you watch it at 1 o'clock or at 6 o'clock or at 6.30 or at 7 o'clock or at 10 o'clock. There's enough opportunities during the day. Or maybe you even have it on the background 24 hours a day. We can do that nowadays, can't we, with the news. We can, it can just be there going on and on and on. Different things from different places coming in. 
I had different apps on my phone, and uh, they would all buzz with the same news story. And it took me a while to catch on to what was going on. So I'd be in a meeting, I'd be sat there, and my phone would buzz, and I'd think, oh, somebody needs me. And then we'd keep talking, and then it'd buzz again, and I'd think, oh, somebody really needs me. And then we'd keep talking, and then it'd buzz again, and I'm thinking, well, do, do I need to go out, or, you know, what's going on? But it's only a little buzz, it's not a ringing, so I'm thinking, oh, I'll, I'll leave it. So four buzzes over, you know, a ten-minute period, so I get out after the meeting, I think, you know, who is it, who needs me? And I find out that four different news apps are telling me that a whale has swung into the wrong part of the water. That's what happens, isn't it? So I've had to go into the settings, and I've had to turn three of them off, because I only need to know once. And I'm not absolutely convinced I even need to know everything that I'm told anyway. But I do need to know some things that pick up. Do we want to turn it off? Do you want to get rid of the news? We can be tempted to ignore the bad news, can't we? We can be tempted to ignore the bad news, maybe because there's so much of it, or maybe because it sort of makes our hearts sink and it, you know, it sort of colours the day. We can be tempted to turn off the bad news, to ignore the bad news. And this bit in the middle of Kings is where we see things go from bad to worse. There's a reason why these verses aren't in your mind when you spring up out of bed in the morning, as Joe was saying. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go to 1 Kings 15. There'll be some inspiration there for me today. Or 1 Kings 16. We're going to find out about uh, you know, how another king disobeyed God and followed the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Yes, that's what we need before we get the bacon on. It's not quite how we think, is it? When we get to these in our quiet times, if we get to these in our quiet times, uh, we think, oh, okay, so we've got to sort of get through these verses and find out what's going on. But, although they may be less inspiring than some of the other scriptures, they are no less inspired. God wants us to have a look at them. God wants us to know about them. They're there for a reason. God has given them us in his word. It's part of the truthfulness and the reality of God's word, isn't it? You know, if you pick up the Bible and just expect everything to be good and, and great and happy, and it's not real. You know, the Bible deals with real things in real time, doesn't it? Real events. It can be like watching the news in some passages at times, because the world has got the same problem today as it had back then. That's the reality. You know, when we're feeling like it's all hard and things are going against us and we're wondering if we'll ever get back to some sort of normality, these verses actually connect for us. Or, you know, when we think that everything around us seems dark and hard as we look at the world, these verses connect. God is being truthful. God is being honest with us. He's connecting with us. When we wonder why the foundations of our society and what those foundations were based on seem to be slipping and moving further and further away week by week, day by day, year by year, this portion of the scriptures connects with us. We see those king things in kings, not kings in things. We see those things in 1 Kings chapter 15 and 16. So the connection may not be one that we'd like, but it is there. It is there for us. As we hear the bad news, as we see the effects of sin in this world around us, we're really not that far away from these chapters. This is what one commentator says. Part of the unattractiveness of these chapters lies in their relentless 
portrait of sin and rebellion as tedious. We need our noses rubbed in this, for the devil loves to invest sin with a spurious glamour. We think sin is attractive. When we see it played out for us, generation after generation after generation, it's tedious. It's horrible. Sin wrecks and destroys. That's what we see here. And that's what we see in the world around us. The reading was disjointed and purposefully so. We looked at God's assessment of the kings. Not all of them. I thought, you know, there's a limit. <laughs> we were two chapters. We didn't look at all of the kings. We just pulled out some bits as we went through. They give us the headlines, if you like, to help us to understand what the author is doing. You know, Solomon was given 11 chapters, wasn't he? 11 chapters. Some of these kings are given a few verses. Do you see where the emphasis is? The emphasis is where the good, godly king who is obeying God and is wise most of the time. We know that he doesn't end well. That's good for us. That's what we want to see. We want to see the blessing that God is doing to his people when his king is in the right place and doing the right thing and looking to him. And we get it and we see the, the temple built and we see the palace built and we see the queen of Sheba coming, the people living under that wisdom. And then we get here and it feels like we're rushing through from one to another. Just a few headlines here and there. We see the difference. Sin is just tedious. So we're not looking at every detail of the chapters. I mean, you can do that and that would be profitable. Of course it would. But at the minute we just want to get that flow of what's going on over these two chapters. We've been introduced to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, a few weeks ago. You may remember him. He's the one that made the stupid decision. We've been introduced to Jeroboam. I think that was last week, the northern leader. We're thinking about him. And then when we add these two chapters to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, we are shown ten kings all together. Ten kings. Nine of them are bad. Nine. One of them is good. And hopefully we'll be able to see something if the stuff's working. If it's not, it's not a massive problem. But they cover a period of about 60 years in history. When we go back, if we just sort of start at the beginning, if you add them all up, it's a lot more than 60. But if you just get to the beginning of Ahab's reign, we're around about between 60 and 70 years. And I wanted to think about these things in, in three ways. The title of the sermon is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It was either that or the sermon with no name. I thought we'd go for The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Because I couldn't think of any other Clint Eastwood um, Spaghetti Western films other than those two. So we've gone with the good, the bad, and the ugly because we see all three in these chapters. We really do. We pull them out. And I'm not going to do it in order. We're going to leave the good till the end so that we've got a bit of hope when we're going out, thankfully. And we can be thinking, yes, hallelujah, rather than, oh, what's the point? So we're going to think, first of all, about the bad and the ugly. And the word that links the bad and the ugly really is that word, sin. The word that links the good is the word grace. So we're really thinking this morning about sin and grace. Sin and grace. And what the author is at pains to point out for us is not if these were good kings politically. Some of them enjoyed times of prosperity. Back in history, we know from extra-biblical sources, for example, that Omri was a politically successful king. The, the nation grew under Omri. He extended the boundaries of the country. He reigned during a time of prosperity. But what the author is at pains to point out 
is God's assessment of him. And he warrants nine verses. Remember Solomon got 11 chapters. Omri gets nine verses. Chapter 16, verses 21 to 28, telling us it was a struggle for him to become king, and he acquired and built up a new city, Samaria. But the important thing, as we heard, verse 25 to 26, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. And then we get, as we do with most, if not all the kings, this sort of general translation. This is my translation. Um, that, you know, if you want to know more, go to Wikipedia. But I've told you what really matters, God's assessment of him. This is the recurring theme. There are some juicy bits as you read through. One of the kings is a drunk, Eli, in verse, chapter 16, verse 8. There's an assassination in 1527. There are power struggles in the middle of chapter 16. There's a suicide in 16, verse 18. But with regularity, these verses keep coming up. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because sin is tedious. It may have different aspects that seem appealing for a time, which is how the devil is able to entice us and tempt us today. But when all is said and done, sin is tedious. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to realize that as exciting as things may seem, maybe adventurous and energetic, sin is actually tedious and it doesn't lead anywhere. It's a bit like a circle. It just goes round and round. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you're thinking, ugh, can we move on? Well, no. It's just a circle, really. Stains round and round. You think of people that have fallen out. Maybe people that were close brothers in a family or, or, or other people. I don't know. Just in a, in a family situation where, you know, they've grown up and they're close. And then something happens and boom. Every time they see each other, the same arguments are sort of rehashed and they've gone over and over. Well, you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. And, and they're so eager for the other person to be feeling how they're feeling, they're not interested in how the other person's feeling. That's sin, isn't it? You're so wanting them to know how hurt you are, you're not bothered how hurt they are and you want to hurt them even more. That's sin, isn't it? That, that round and round thing that just goes round and round. You know, even to the point, tedious point where over the years they forget what the original thing was even all about. Anything that the other one is done or does is taken as negative, read the wrong way or maybe the right way, but it's, it's, it, it doesn't move forward. There's no, it's just round and round and round. Maybe you know examples of things like that. Maybe you see it in different things. But actually... To say that it's round and round and round is not quite true. If you look at it from the top, it's round and round and round. But if you look at it from the side, the roundness is sort of, is, is always going downwards. It's like a helter-skelter. Sin is like a helter-skelter. It's not just moving round, but, but down at the same time and moving in the wrong direction. You see it. You know, the, the tediousness of sin is brought out well by, by C.S. Lewis when he's He's actually describing hell in one of the things he wrote. And this is what he says. He says, hell begins with a, with a grumbling mood, always complaining, 
always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you no longer can. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I find that one of the most frightening things. Your existence for eternity is just a grumble. It's just awful, isn't it? No longer really you, just the grumble. Becomes more and more ugly. It's like the sin in itself is in control. Nothing left but the grumble. That downward movement starts to show itself in true ugliness. Like an addict after many years of abuse. You look and your heart goes out, doesn't it? You just think, oh, what, what a waste. We see that ugliness. We see that downward movement in the last two kings. There's something different about the last two. Omri and Ahab, 16.25. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But then we get a bit more info. And sinned more than all those before him. Same of Ahab, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, including Omri, his dad. More evil than all those before him. Because it's just gaining momentum. The spiral effect, the lower down the spiral we get, the uglier things become. We see it in the world. We see it in, in people. The author is going to slow down when we get to Ahab. And we're going to think about him a little bit. He, he, he features as we look at Elijah over the next few weeks. Because God is going to be gracious. He's going to do something gracious. He's going to speak into the situation. But clearly something has to happen to stop this downward spiral, doesn't it? Something has to happen to stop this downward spiral. Nine kings, two in Judah, seven in Israel. But as I said earlier, there are ten kings in these two chapters. And now it's time, thankfully, to think about the good. Think about grace. We look here at Asa in chapter 15, verses 9 to 24. And here is where we have cause for hope. We have that rare thing in 1 Kings, a good king. And it is rare, isn't it? It was rare in those two chapters. It's actually rare all the way through the book. He's not perfect by any means, but we're told in verse 11 of chapter 15, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Or verse 14b, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. And we're thinking, whew, bit of fresh air at least. Hallelujah, something a little bit different. In contrast to those around him, he reigns for 41 years. You can see that up there. He reigns for 41 years. Maybe you can't see that up there if you're at the back. Apologies. Um, I'll tell you later. You can see it in the, in the Bible. It's a sign of God's grace. He's a contrast to what is happening in the north. This is in the south. And it's a contrast to what's happening in the north. You can see it visually there, can't you? 
three kings over a very similar period to these seven kings. And something happens with Asa, doesn't it, these 41 years? A rot is stopped, if you like. It continues in the north, but in the south, the rot is stopped because amidst all the sin, there is grace. You could say we're given a glimpse of grace. I mean, he's not perfect, Asa. And if you look in Chronicles, you'll find that there's a harsher judgment on him from the author there. You can look that up later if you're interested. But what's going on here in 1 Kings is the author wants to to encourage you today, and me. He wants to encourage us. He wants to encourage anyone living in times when it feels like sin is winning. Because that's what it does feel like in these two chapters. When it feels like things are getting worse rather than better. He's positive about what God is doing through Asa. He wants us to see his grace. He's promised in verses 4 and 5 to give David a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son. Did you see that in the reading that Joe read? Promised to give him a son, a lamp in Jerusalem. This is God's doing. Grace always is. You know, sin is man's doing, but grace is God's doing. Dale Ralph Davis says this, the kingdom remains. Now, we could think about these words for today, or or we could think about these words 3,000 years ago. The kingdom remains. Not because man obeys, but because God has decided. Why don't the kingdom and the people of God vanish into the mists mists of history because God will not permit it. He has decided that his kingdom will come. Grace is not only greater but more stubborn than our sins. Don't you love that line? (laughs) Grace is not only greater but more stubborn than our sins. Hallelujah. That is good news, isn't it? That we may get depressed and we may look around and think that sin's winning, but grace is more stubborn. The kingdom of God is still here. 3,000 years later, the lamp in Jerusalem will ultimately be the Lord Jesus Christ, won't it? That's the promise. The greater son, the greater king. It's his grace that raises up people. Left to our own devices, we will be like the kings of Israel. But by the grace of God, we can become his people. We can be part of his kingdom. That grace is stubborn. It's greater and more stubborn than our sins. And you know, by the time we get to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we realize that we're all saved by grace. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's what he gives to us. The reason we have hope for the future when the present can seem so bleak is because of the grace of God. We don't know what he will do to surprise us, do we? We don't know what the next chapter of history will read like. And he may well do something to surprise. He may raise up an Asa. Who knows what God is going to do? But that's what gives us hope, isn't it? In the dark times, in the difficulties, in the struggles. 
He's raising up Asa here. Later he's going to raise up Elijah. We'll be thinking about him over the next few weeks. We don't know who he may raise up today or tomorrow. But we do know as we look back, if that's looking forward, then that has to be looking back, doesn't it? We do know as we look back that he did raise up the Lord Jesus, didn't he? From death, from the grave. He raised him up to prove that his sacrifice was accepted, that our sins have been dealt with, that we can be forgiven and that we can know God and we can come to him and the way is open. He gives us eyes to see because he is a gracious God. Have you understood that about him? Have you grasped that characteristic of God, that it is part of his nature, that he is gracious? Do you know that you're a sinner, but that he is a saviour? You know, Jesus was given for us. We, we need him, and a gracious, loving father gave him. It's all summed up in probably the most famous verse of the Bible, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave. It's his grace. It's his giving nature. He gave his one and only son. Why? Well, remember the C.S. Lewis quote? There's something inside of us that is perishing and leading to perishing. Why? So that we may not perish, but have eternal life. So that grace can overcome sin. So that grace can conquer sin in our lives. And we no longer have to face that perishing, that horrible grumble that's just going on and on and on forever. We can know life and peace and grace in the presence of God. He wants to stop us going down and down and down, further and further and further, and bring us into a living, vibrant relationship with himself by his grace. He has given his one and only son. He's a God of grace. And that's what gives us hope, isn't it? That's what gives us hope. So the next time that you're watching the news and you're trying to find the remote control to turn it off because it's depressing you or it's getting annoying or it's getting frustrating, why not look for signs of God's grace instead? Glimpses of grace like we get here in this chapter with Asa. When we look around and things are tough and challenging and, and hard, why not look for, for signs of God's grace around us? You know, it's gracious that we can meet this morning <laughs> after the 18 months that we've had. We're not there yet. And we can say, well, you know, it's not like it used to be. No, it's not. But it will be one day, maybe. The point is, it's not like it was. <laughs> That's grace. It's gracious. Well, I don't know about you, I know it's hard there sitting in a mask, but let me tell you, it is so much better to be looking into faces rather than just my phone. You know, I'm not the, the, the best sermon listener. I've realised that as I've been preaching to myself because I can see myself in the phone as it's been set up on the thing and I'm not a very good listener. I'm always looking down like this rather than... So when I do look, I just catch myself. <laughs> Thank God that I'm not looking at my phone anymore, but I'm able to look at you guys. You're beautiful. You may not think it. You may think, oh, no, you don't mean me. I mean every single one of you. You're beautiful. Thank you so much for coming. Honestly, I was losing the will to live by looking at my phone and <laughs> trying to get a message across. 
And now I can look at people. It's grace. It really is. It's grace and we can look at each other. We've got coffee this morning after the service. We can, uh, well, if you brought it, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we can go in the back. If you haven't brought it, you're still allowed in the back. We can sit in groups and we can, we can talk to each other. We can engage with each other. It's grace in the midst of all the difficulty and the hardship. When things in your life all feel like they're on top of you, remember the gifts of grace God has given. I mean, one this morning from Joe. We can, you know, I can go in my study. I've got, I don't know how many different translations of an English Bible. I've got the message version. I've got the NIV. I've got the new King James version. I've got the ESV. I've got the NRSV. I'm not showing off. I've just picked them up along the way, different years, to be able to study. I can go online and, and pick up another one if I want. There are so many different ones. I've got some Bible software where I can click on Bible versions, all in English, and just a, a row of things come down. That's grace. That God has given us his word in our language in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. And we can read it. And we can engage with it and be challenged by it. And you know, when we're tempted to judge others because of their mistakes, we have to remember that phrase, don't we? There but for the grace of God go I. We don't know their circumstances. We don't know what they were doing. But we can look at our lives and think, Thank you, God, that by your grace you have intervened. You've saved me. You have moved. You've called me to yourself. And I guess really the, the one question this morning to leave you with is, do you know this God of grace? Do you know this God of grace? Are you trusting this God of grace? Have you got off the helter-skelter, <laughs> if you like? And do you live your life in the presence of the God of grace, the continually giving God, the God who gave the best thing that he had, his son, for us so that we could know him? And do you want to praise him? Do you want to adore him? Do you want to bow down before him? Because we can do all of those things now as we sing our final hymn.